Okay, you guys. So this is Michelle, Dr. Michelle De Dexter, and she's a sexologist and a in integral. Is that in integrative? Is that what do you say? How do you say that? Yeah. Integrative. integrative. Integrative psychologist. Okay, so explain what that is. Okay. Well, you brought up integral, so let's talk about the difference between yeah. integral and integrative, right? So integral means that there is something essential. And integrative means that we take all the parts and we look at the whole thing. So an integral approach you know, says like we're looking at the essential part of the human being and an integrative approach says, let's look at all the parts of the human being. Let's look at their bodies and their unconscious minds and their conscious minds and their souls and their spirits and their bio field and, and everything else. So, yeah. So I know that you, are intuitive but so like how and and like it mentioned a little bit about how you sometimes use that in your work so how does that show up for you and and how do, how do you how do you put it into into your work oh my gosh i am lost without it so when i was getting my doctorate i decided i wanted to study intuition and so i gathered together 10 women who self-identified as intuitive because i wanted to know what the culture of intuitive women was about and I'm gonna distill my dissertation down to one tiny little sentence for you. Intuition is your compass. You are lost without it. I love it. Yeah. So when, when did you feel like you tapped in and how does that show up for you? Cause like for me, like, um, it, you, you know, for me, it was a big journey of learning how to trust my inner voice. Like sometimes I was always questioning, like if that's, and still I question outside influence and I always have to like center myself and try to, to figure out like what I think about any given subject on my own without, you, you know, without like kind of programming in some way. So like, that's how, like how I center myself is, you know, I just need a couple minutes to sit with myself and to breathe and just so kind of like, and I, and I almost like wait for like waves of inner talk that I trust to come. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I, that's how I feel it. That's how I do it. Absolutely. And so there are generally about four main ways that people experience their intuition. One is knowingness. And it sounds like that's primarily how you do it. You know, which people who are knowers, they say, I don't know how I know, but I just know that I know. But I know. <laughs> And then there are people who are very kinesthetic. They actually feel something in their bodies. They usually talk about like a, a tingling sensation or like some, some part of their body lights up and they're like, oh, that's it. And uh, then some people are clairaudient. They literally hear what they call spirit or angels or guides or God, whatever word they use, that, that something that they feel like is outside of themselves. Some wisdom voice speaks to them using the voice in their own minds. And then there are the clairvoyants, you know, who literally see visions that are symbolic, you know, of something, um, you know, much like dreams are symbolic. So they kind of have to interpret it, you know, like, oh, I see you climbing a hill and, and there's a red balloon. What does that mean for you? You know, that type of thing. So um, I was probably a very intuitive child, but, you know, like most children who go to school in America, that's kind of beaten out of us, you know, like here, sit at this desk and learn how to, you know, read and write, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's not exactly, you know, like, ooh, you know, let's explore intuition, right? And I remember in the first grade, you know, say they, I said something about, like, and the spirit does this. And then the teacher was kind of stern and she says, spirit is not something we talk about in school. I'm like, oh, okay. Six-year-old me just got told. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah mine was like that too, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, you know, those of us, you know, who had to kind of clamp down on it and then rediscovered it as adults, you know, kind of had to work on, you know, kind of building it a little bit like a muscle, which is another finding I, I found among those 10 intuitive women, you know, that, that intuition, you know, once you practice it, it does get stronger and it does get clearer. That's, so that's the good news. And um, I had a friend who was very intuitive and I thought, well, if she can do it, I can do it. So I started reading some books. There's um, two books on the market that have the same name. They're both called You Are Psychic. And uh, one is by a woman named Katz, K-A-T-Z, and another one is uh, by um, a guy named Sanders, um, like sandpaper. And um, 
yeah, both of them, um, you know, have a lot of overlapping information and, and a lot of interesting exercises. And uh, so I started playing around with the exercises. So the one by Katz, you know, she talks about like, imagine going into a movie theater and you sit down and you're calm and you simply ask, okay, movie theater, please pay, play the movie that I need to see that will answer this question. And then you just imagine in your mind's eye that now that there's just this movie playing, like, whoa, that actually worked. So yours is uh, Claire Audio or Claire Visual or yeah. So I experience intuition in all four of those ways, but um, I'm definitely probably more clairvoyant um, than the others. And then as the years have gone by and practicing, you know, because again, it's about you know sitting down and listening. And that's another thing that you know how how the flavor of intuition is from your own mind speaking to you, because you know mind can be very creative, right? It can pick up all kinds of fun things. You know, so when it comes from that feeling of like, this came from outside of me, this just, this was just knowledge that just dropped on me, you know, from something outside of myself, that's the flavor of intuition rather than like, oh, I went hunting for it. You know? Yeah, I would say my, my strong, like I, my most frequent is probably just knowing, but then uh, my, I get really strong, clear audience where I have voices like, well, boom, like yeah. not, but I can't, I can't, I can't will that. Like, that's just, that comes like, I, you know, like I've had some, some dead people's moms say something to me in my ear, or I've had, um, you know, just like, like if I'm almost like in a, you know, like, like we got held at gunpoint in Mexico and I had like this voice that told me that the gun wasn't real, like, like a male voice was in my head and I was like, whoa, uh, you know, like, so, but I cannot decide to just hear stuff. It just, it comes every once in a while. Yes, exactly. And that's the flavor of it, right? That you're not out there looking for it. It's just, boom, there it is. So, so t let's talk about the sexologist part. Yes. Like, how'd you get into all that? Well, you know, I was raised in one of those fundamentalist Christian religions where they uh, have all kinds of strict rules. So um, I was 12 years old and um, I was invited with the teenage group to sit in and uh, they told us that they were going to talk about sex. And I thought, ooh, I'm 12 and I get to be with the teenagers and we're going to talk about sex. This ought to be great. Well, then they uh, bring in this woman who's, you know, college age. She's probably 18 or 19. And then she starts talking about all these nasty, horrible boys in college who, you know, would try to French kiss her and, you know, they, they would, you know, touch her body. And that was so horrible. And how, you know, no girl, you know, who's a good Christian girl should allow that. And, uh, you know, we have to keep ourselves pure until we're married. And I walked out of that room going, well, that was a huge disappointment. So you can imagine that I got a lot of those messages, you know, throughout my teenage years about, you know, dressing modestly and, um, you know, not engaging in sexual fantasy and not masturbating and, and um, you know, certainly not exploring anything sexually, you know, beyond um, holding hands and closed mouth kissing. So, you know, right, that's not... No sex before marriage kind of thing. Yeah. Abstinence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, that didn't really sit well with my feelings about what it is to be human. You know, I mean, it, it, most people, you know, they, they, they date in their teenage years and, and 20s and, you know, they, they have these, these human desires, you know, for connection, right? And of course, one of the functions, you know, of human sexuality and human sexual expression is about that. It's about intimacy. It's about connection. It's about sharing. You know, and, and so to have these rules about like, no, you will not share, you know, it's like, but, but it feels like this is the most natural thing in the world. And you're telling me that I shouldn't want to do this. And I, I should just not do it because, well, I still don't understand the reasons why, you know, I mean, now, obviously, I mean, you know, when it comes to sexual safety, there are, you know, some good reasons mm -hmm. why and, and pretty obvious, but you know, it, it just, it felt very, very punitive and, and like a denial of, of humanity and a, and a denial of human expression. And that didn't feel good. So I didn't set out to be a sexologist when I hung out my shingle with my private practice 17 years ago. I was a generalist, but 90% of the people who came to me had love and sex problems. <laughs> and, then, and then... Wow, okay. 
long after that. Um, I, I've been a, I have a dual career. I'm, I'm also a college professor and a graduate school professor. And uh, so shortly after I hung out my shingle, um, my boss at the university where I was teaching said, oh, can you start teaching human sexuality classes? <laughs> You're like, oh, I, guess, I guess it came to you. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. So yeah, this really came to me. And I'm happy to do it, you know, because obviously having lived my, my early years like that now, you know, I'm really, really interested in healthy human sexuality. So I did another study. I, um, I interviewed 10 people who self-identified as having healthy sexuality. And um, they told me wonderful things. You know, they told me things like, yes, you know, pornography ethically consumed you know, can be an enhancement to sexuality. And they told me about how they liked their bodies. And they told me about how they had, you know, purely lust body to body sexual experiences. And those were just as valuable to them as the, you know, the big spiritual ones, you know, where they felt like they were out of their body, but in their body and like connected to the cosmos and, you know, all of that. So is it, is it mainly like when people come to you um, with sexual problems, are they mainly like within their relationship? Well, or, you know, like, like oh, they're they're married and they want to talk about that or they're in a, some sort of relationship or is it more like do they come to you with like questions about their own sexuality or like what, what kind of spectrum do you usually tend to work in all of the above um i tend to work with a lot of men who are struggling with erectile functioning okay and also a lot of women who are struggling with painful sex conditions and um, also mismatched libido or low libido um, I get a lot of people who are coming in saying, you know, that I, I, I'm married or I'm in a partnership and our libido just does not match. How do we salvage this? That is the f craziest thing to me because I, I, I was, um, I actually was watching this YouTube video on uh, Marissa Pierce and John Gray the other day. And, and she was saying that that was one of her main things she got was she's like, and I don't understand why the the people with the same libido don't ever find each other it always seems to be opposite and it, but but it really does like I have so many friends I know that are in situations that are mismatched and that it and it's not always like only the girl doesn't want to it's it's it, every gender is is different so you're, you're, it's kind of it is kind of weird that they uh they don't seem to match up a lot together yeah it's a pretty common problem <laughs> I mean, I guess it's it's something that develops over time, right? It's not usually from day yeah, one. Yeah, it does. You know, because in the beginning, you know, people often come to a relationship with a sexual deficit, meaning that they haven't had sexual expression for a while, and then they meet somebody, and it's that new relationship energy where it's super exciting, and, you know, they want that intimacy, they want that connection, and it's super fun. And then after a while, it just kind of wanes, you know, and this is kind of a biological issue, too. You know, they talk about, you know, all the neurotransmitters, you know, the dopamine, you know, that, that's, um, you know, you're so high, you know, on that new person. And then after one to three years, you know, all that dopamine, you know, is kind of worn off in your brain. And so, you know, you look at that person and you, and instead now you have feelings of well-being rather than excitement, mm. you know, you know, so it's like, nah, I've already had you. Yeah. We'll get around to it maybe next Thursday. Yeah. So is it, do you feel like it's emotional or do you feel like these kinds of things are chemical? Like, well, again, because I take an integrative perspective, I'm interested in looking at the body, the mind and the spirit. So it's all of it. It's biological, it's emotional, it's mental and it's spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, and I have to tell you, I get a lot of people who come to me with religious trauma, you know, cause I always like to start yeah. with, okay, you know, what, and, and our goals are based on the ideal situation for that particular person. So if a person comes in and says, you know, I want to have a happy, healthy sex life with my partner, I say, great, that's your ideal situation. That's our goal. That's where we're going to start. And so then we start looking at what are the root causes that are getting in the way of that person achieving that goal. And wouldn't you know, nine times out of 10, that there's either some religious trauma or there's some cultural trauma around sex and sexuality. You know, even yesterday I had a client who came in and, and um, her 15 year old son didn't put two and two together that um, his mom was sleeping with her new boyfriend. And, and um, when he found evidence of such, you know, that he kind of freaked out. And um, he was like, mom, I can't believe that you're sleeping with this guy. And she's like, um, people have sex. And he's like, but sex is for reproduction. And she was like, who told you that? You know, that's only one of the purposes of sex. Right, right. Yeah, yeah the, the, and navigating it. Uh, there's such a taboo too in our society with how to navigate everything with our children. Like I know so many people whose parents like 
their idea of sex education with their parents was just like, did you take that class at school? Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've met a lot of people where they didn't even get that. You know, and um, even when I was teaching human sexuality classes at the university, some of the parents, you know, would, um, you know, really balk, you know, when I would present the unit about educating children about sex and sexuality in age appropriate ways. You know, I remember one man, he had an 11 year old daughter. He was, you know, probably in his 40s, just to give context. Um, and he was like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to talk to my 11 year old daughter about sex and sexuality. I, I, I want her mom to do it. And I said, you know what? She could really, really benefit from your perspective as a man and number two, as her dad who loves her. And I'm not saying that you, you guys need to get into all the nitty gritty. I mean, at 11, you know, she needs to know the mechanics of intercourse and how babies are made. Um, and, you know, that there is such a thing as, you know, gay people and, and trans people. And, you know, and then beyond that, she doesn't necessarily need a lot of information right now, but she does need to have conversations about dating and about flirting and about boundaries. That's probably the most important thing to talk to tweens and teens about, about boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, in my life, um, we talk a lot about boundaries and I'm not talking about just, you know, like the verbal boundaries or behavioral boundaries. I'm also talking about energetic boundaries. You know, how does it feel in your body when you have a good sexual boundary? You know, and a lot of people, you know, they haven't considered that because their boundaries have been so broken down, you know. Um, I'll give a very quick example. This happened to me. Um, I, I uh, had done, you know, my, my work and I had my, my sexual boundaries all set and that felt really good. And, you know, and I wasn't getting inappropriate stuff happening to me anymore. And, um, and then I went to the beach with a friend who happened to be male and I had always made it very clear to this man, look, you know what, I'm, I'm not, I'm not available for anything romantic. If you want to be my friend, this is a platonic relationship. And, um, you know, I asked him to, to rub sunscreen on my back and um, he took that opportunity to grab my breast. Okay. Yeah. And I thought, all right, well, friendship over, number one. And, um, and number two, you know, he'd broken my sexual boundary at that point, right? And um, so I had to, to look at that and say, okay, hmm, all right, I got to put my boundaries back up. So I had to look at, you know, how did that make me feel in that moment? So I felt un unsafe and I felt a bit violated and I felt disrespected. And, um, and so then I did, you know, the processes that I use. I have, you know, a, um, a menu where I have um, 43 different methodologies and hundreds of techniques. But um, one of the, the ones that I use a lot is um, UFO pose, which has nothing to do with aliens or spaceships. <laughs> oh, I love UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it stands for unwinding the frontal and occipital lobe. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's one hand on the forehead and the other hand on the occiput, and it doesn't matter which hand goes in front or back okay yeah I've, I've i've kind of heard this for like a like activating your merkaba in your head i don't know mm -hmm. but how do, how do you what, what, what do you guys do with it well it does a lot of things um it turns out that um that you have a, a pretty um pretty significant chakra right there back in in your uh the like, your like where a low ponytail would go kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah exactly right there on the ridge of your head okay back chakra back there. It's a minor chakra, but it's still a chakra. And then of course, you know, you've got a major chakra right here, your third eye or brow chakra right here. So simply by aligning the chakras, that's helpful. And then in traditional Chinese medicine, it turns out that there's, you know, about a hundred um, different um, acupressure points or acu, um, acu points right there on the forehead. But there are five that are really, really critical. Um, two right here are for your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that's always scanning the environment for threat. With your yeah, hairline? Right. Yeah, right to your hairline. Yep. So yeah, so these, these call them that feeling of I feel threatened, you know, so you can feel safe when, just by holding that. Mm -hmm. And then right here in the middle of your hairline, that one is your brain point, so that calms your brain. And then right here in the middle of your, your forehead, so between the pupils of your eyes and your hairline right there, those, those two points, these are your emotional release points. You know, so any trapped emotion in the body, you know, but just by holding those points, um, and thinking about it, you can pretty much release it. So, you know, shame, fear, anxiety, rage, whatever it is. Yeah. So when yeah. you put your over your forehead, you've covered not only the chakra, but you've also covered those five really important points. And then when you hold the back of your head, now you're allowing your whole brain to communicate with itself. Now right. the brain. So it's like a little cocoon within yourself. It is. Yeah, it is. I like it. It does feel comforting. Right. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's very relaxing. You know, this is a perfect, you know, just way to do stress relief, right? You know, so when my, my ex-friend, you know, 
um, you know, did that, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to hold my head and I'm going to build back up my boundaries, you know, because, you know, here's the reality is like, okay, I was vulnerable, but I handled it. Yeah. 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 Well, so like, okay. Do you, um, when you're talking to somebody and you get like an intuitive tap, uh, do you tell them, do you let them know like, okay, my intuition is telling me this, or do you just kind of just say it? And then like, they don't need to know where it came from for you. It depends on the person and um, and it depends on the circumstances. So I also use applied kinesiology muscle testing, which is uh, where you're accessing the knowledge of the body. So, you know, they talk about the biofield um, and uh, they also talk about, you know, the, the aura or the etheric field. They're often talking about very similar things. So the field, um, you know, this, this information field that surrounds our bodies, it's taking in trillions of bits of information every single second. And conscious mind is taking in a few. So it basically comes down to the field is taking in 99.999% of the information and conscious mind is taking in about 0.0001. So what we're consciously aware of is not very much. Um, and to add to this, neurologically, when they've done MRI studies about, you know, the conscious parts of the brain versus unconscious parts of the brain and measured mm -hmm. bits of information, it turns out that the conscious parts of the brain can think, I put that in quotes, think about 30 thoughts per second. And when I heard that, I was like, 30 thoughts per second consciously? Wow. wow that sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah, right? And then um, they looked at the unconscious parts of the brain and the unconscious structures of the brain can, again, think 2.5 million thoughts per second. Wow. Yeah. 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 So the reason why I use applied kinesiology muscle testing is because I want to tap into that 99.99% of information that's there in the field. Because again, conscious mind is kind of like pea brain compared to, to that, right? And um, so... Sometimes, you know, when I'm, I'm using, uh, you know, the reflexes, you know, to, to use a muscle test, you know, show me yes, that means congruent, show me no, you know, when the muscles go weak, the strong muscles congruent, um, weak muscle is incongruent. Um, you know, the, the reflexes or the muscles will go weak and, uh, and I'll think, well, I don't know why, so I'm not going to say that. But I'll file it away and maybe I'll write it down in, in, in my, my little notes, you know, for later. And then later it will, it will come out and it will be appropriate. Um, let me give you an example. So I had a, a client today and um, this woman really believes in uh, autocratic parenting. You know, she just is the type of mom where, you know, her kid will ask for something and um, her answer will just be no, because I said so. Right. That's the reason. Quit, talk, quit backing, you know, backing talk or, or talk, talking back. Talking That's back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so you can imagine that she's, you know, had some difficult times with her kids and, and um, now that they're adults, you know, they're, they're not exactly, um, how shall we say, the most well-adjusted. Wonder yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. You know, children who are raised in that, in those types of environments tend to become uh, rather isolated. They, um, they tend toward depression and they also become very rebellious toward their parents, you know, so that's, you know, what's happening with her kids. No surprise. So, um, you know, I, intuitively, I, I mean, I feel like I really do need to give her some guidance, you know, around being more democratic, but I can't blast her with that. You know, I can't just tell her, look, you know, you got to be democratic with, with your kids and you've got to tell them why you're thinking these things and, and, you know, why you're making the decisions you're making, you know, because that's not going to go well for her. She's just going to be defensive with me and probably never come back. Right. But if I can be gentle with her, you know, and I muscle test the things that I say to her, you know, and I, I, I'm very gentle in the way that I, I present things because the intuition will come and I'll, and I'll hear something like, um, tell her about, you know, say, um, having boundaries, you know, with, uh, with her children around um, asking about their grades, you know, because that's, for example, something that came up. And, um, and so then I'll muscle test and like, okay, so should I say it directly? No. Okay. All right. So I'll muscle test, you know, um, what to say, and, and I'll get something like, be gentle. And so then I'll say something to her, like, I'm very curious what would happen is when you asked your child about their grades, if 
you approached them in a way where you said something like, hey, you know, I, I really hope you're doing well. And if you're not, let's, you know, focus on, on uh, you know, making a, an improvement plan. And, and um, either way, you have my love and you have my... And now that I've said that, you know, how are your grades? So do you, do you find that, um, is it frustrating for you when maybe they don't take your advice at all? It's like... Well, yeah, I, I figure that my job is never to give advice. My, 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 uh, my job is only to ask questions and, um, and only to guide. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an advice giver. That okay. would be a consultant. Yeah. So people, if they're with me, um, it's going to be because they have a level of motivation. And, um, and one of the things that I like to work on in the very first few sessions, probably the, the first or second session with a person is, um, is muscle testing and finding out if there's anything unconscious that's actually blocking them from their motivation and their willingness to get better. Because it can turn out that there's actually several things that can get in the way. And there, of course, you know, you know, one woman to me, she weighed 300 pounds. She said she wanted to lose weight. I said, great, I'm happy to help you with that. So we put up the goal, you know, lose weight, be the ideal weight. And um, so then we muscle test, you know, are you ready, willing, and able to achieve this goal? She can need this for you. Well, it turned out that she didn't want to change. You know, there was a part of her that was like, that, you know, by the way, she was eating cookies for breakfast. That was her breakfast every single day. She wanted to just continue to eat her cookies and not change. Right. And I said, all right, well, we've got to start right there because until that part is ready, willing, and able to change, we're not going to make any progress. You know, I can put you on a diet plan. I can, you know, motivate you. I, you know, I can do anything I want to do. Um, so, I, okay. So yeah, like, when exactly. we talk about muscle testing now, so when you're talking to them, are you mm -hmm. literally doing this to yourself to sort of just like know things like on, on uh, how you're going to talk to them yourself? And then are you then also teaching them their way to, to muscle test themselves? Like how, how, how important is the muscle testing for you in your practice? Oh, my muscle testing is critical. Yeah, it's, it's, I can't do my work without it. So when I'm muscle testing myself, I muscle test with my hands because that's the quickest and easiest way to do it. So you demonstrated this way, which I use sometimes, but most of the time I just do the cross finger technique, you know, so I, I, uh, I cross my fingers and, um, and this is a yes, it's nice and strong. And this is a no. Oh, so whether or not you can bend your no. fingers together. Oh, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause yeah, I've this, not heard of that one. Does it matter if it's left or right hand or does it just pull up both? Doesn't matter. No. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and you, so put, you, yeah. you put your pinky finger yeah, over so, your middle finger. Uh, yeah, my index finger over my middle finger. Index, yeah. yeah, sorry. Cool. That's okay. Do what you meant. So what about... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know, but the podcast people will be like, what? The pinky over the, uh, <laughs> so, um, okay. So do you do <laughs> EMF ever like the emotional freedom tapping? Oh, um, EFT, emotional freedom technique, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah so to, uh, to answer your so to answer your first question, um, I do train um, all of my clients to muscle test themselves. It's really important. Um, and I do use EFT, emotional freedom technique, or, your, or the methodology that I use primarily is something called HBLU, which stands for healing from the body level up. And the philosophy behind it is, again, very integrative, that you've got to heal all the parts. So you've got to heal the body, the unconscious mind, the conscious mind, the energy body, the soul or the spirit, and also all the unknown levels above and beyond the soul or spirit. So all six levels get healed. Okay. Yeah. Looping back, you know, to the, yeah, looping back to the woman who ate cookies for breakfast but was overweight, you know, we had to, you know, deal with her biological craving for sugar. And uh, we also had to deal with the part of her that was, you know, basically like a petulant child, because we've all got petulant child parts inside of us, right? You know, mm -hmm. and so the petulant child going, I want my cookies. <laughs> right, the Baruch salt. So once we were able to heal that part up and grow the part up, you know, spontaneously, she didn't want cookies for breakfast anymore. And she started eating things like eggs. Oh, figure. That's the last cool. time I saw her, she'd lost something like 30 pounds. That's pretty good. I mean, that counts. So, so I heard you talk about how like guys have um, chemical emotional cycles like every seven days. What, what was that? 
Like, you know so, how women have their cycle once a month? You said that guys cycle through their hormones too? Yeah, more seasonally. Yeah. So um, women have more variety of hormones, but, uh, but certainly men, you know, ha are driven by, by hormones just as much as women. And um, so um, obviously the, the most uh, prevalent male hormone is testosterone. And testosterone cycles really, really rapidly. So testosterone um, cycles throughout the day and um, it, it's on a pretty quick cycle of about 20 minutes. So this is why I, I say that, yeah, if, if your man is in a bad mood, give him 20 minutes, he'll probably feel better. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah, that's, that's uh, quite a difference from us, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So whereas women tend to, to cycle on average about 28 days, um, men tend to cycle a little more seasonally, but also um, other hormones tend to cycle pretty fast, you know, like within a few days. So, yeah. Um, you know, so when, when men are complaining about like, oh, women are so hormonal, I always want to shoot back. So are you. <laughs> or it sounds like especially you are in some ways. Yeah. Actually, you know, because testosterone, I mean, to quote the great philosopher Ken Wilber, he said, if, if testosterone could talk, it would say, fuck it or kill it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really, really would. You know, there's um, a magazine that my brother subscribes to, and, and um, every single cover is the same. It's a scantily clad woman holding a firearm. And I'm like, okay, so this is <laughs> central. Fuck it or kill it. Yeah, that one does both for you. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, so when men, you know, they, they, they feel aggressive and they feel like this, this sense of like, you know, shut up, don't cry, you know, walk it off, you know, why are you so emotional? That's testosterone talking. You know, and what I found very interesting is that um, transgendered people, when they've done hormone therapy, particularly, um, female to male transgendered people when they started taking testosterone, you know, suddenly they, they feel very annoyed by women's emotionality, whereas before they felt like they understood it. Wow. Yeah, I could yeah. see that. I could, yeah. So it, it is interesting how sometimes you wonder, well, I mean, I even see that within myself. Like if I'm like right before I'm about to start my period, like there are times where like, I'll be like, what is this salty solution coming from my eyes? Oh, I'm super emotional. Like, why am I so, like, like I'm outside of myself. It's almost like there's another me that like the hormones can sometimes take over, you know, yeah. where you're like, oh, something else is driving here for a second. What is this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've had those experiences too. I mean, I, I remember, you know, one moment where I was, you know, terribly PMSy and just irritated at, at my then boyfriend all day long. And, and, um, and I found myself you know, like crying, like screaming at the sky, this life is too hard. Like, wow. <laughs> Obviously I am not really okay today, but you know, most of the time I don't feel that way. But on that particular day, yeah, that, that was feeling very, very real. So, okay, about um, like psych being a psychiatrist or a psychologist, sorry. I always get those yeah. words. I guess, is that, a, is that a common thing? People always get those words mixed up? They, they do, yeah. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor and, um, and that person is very much focused on, you know, the brain and medication. Okay. And a psychologist um, went to graduate school and wrote a doctoral a dissertation and um, and then focuses on research and and um, doing clinical practice generally and um, by the way I'm actually not a clinical psychologist a lot of people think that you know that just because I have psychologist in my title that I do mm -hmm. clinical and that's actually not true so an integrative psychologist gets to work with people who are already you know doing pretty well and they want their lives to be even better so it's I, I mean in some uh, in some how closely related is that to life coaching? So um, life coaching um, has no regulation whatsoever. So anybody under the sun can say I'm a coach. Life coach. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, whereas, um, you know, generally um, being a psychologist, you do need to have um, a PsyD degree, doctor of psychology or a PhD, um, doctor of philosophy of psychology. Okay, so how common is it? Because I don't really think I've heard of anybody else who, you know, um, is parring that with somebody who's even open to intuition. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and maybe that's my own assumption of the whole thing, but I always sort of felt that it was like, um, uh, you know, that that's kind of like, like faux pas, like that's left at the door. So how do you find, how, how do you integrate those two things together? So the big, the big umbrella is integrative psychology. And then under the umbrella of integrative psychology is energy psychology. And um, energy psychology has been around for about 40-ish, 40, 40 plus years now. And um, it originated in California. And uh, it was the idea of, you know, we've got to understand this subtle energy system that the ancients have been talking about. So, you know, the principles of traditional Chinese medicine, they were writing about those things 20,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, the ancient chakra systems, um, you know, the practices have been around for at least 3,000 years and um, the text, you know, for several thousand years before that. So, you know, I always make the joke, surely somebody by now would have noticed if this stuff didn't work. I mean, you know, there's also like Rupert Sheldrake, who does the morphogenetic field um, study. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there, there, there's, there's a lot to this stuff. There really is. Yeah, exactly. And graduate school, where I am currently a professor at the California Institute for Human Science, that's basically what we do. We're a research center and school, and, and uh, we do original research on these energy studies. We have a Faraday cage, which is um, a big copper cage. It's like a big room. It's about a, a 10 by 8 room, and you go inside, you lock the door, and it completely blocks all electromagnetic frequency. Right. No EMF in there. And so then you can do experiments, you know, and, and um, so they've done some experiments with like, you know, like sending thoughts and, and um, had some success with that and, so, and sending energy. And um, some really, we have some really cool technology uh, there. Um, our founder, uh, Dr. Um, Motoyama, uh, invented an AMI device. It's the Apparatus for Meridian Identification. And um, so this little machine can tell you which uh, meridians are all clogged up and uh, which ones are open. And so we love to do experiments. That's yeah, cool. Okay. All right, hook your hand up to the machine and we're going to show which meridians are clogged. And now we're going to do an energy psychology technique. And now, oh, look, they're open. Look at that. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, well, I do some energy healing too, and I'm really into, um, you know, well, I'm into all kinds of this stuff too, but like I, I, um, I, I'm, I've been researching getting one of those like canopy things for my bed. Cause I'm thinking oh, like, yeah. Ooh, I wonder if I should sleep underneath the Faraday cage, just, you know, just to completely get like uninterrupted dreams or, you know, just yeah. complete shielding of outside influence. I don't know if it would make a difference or not. Anyway, they're very expensive. Those they yeah, there's a, a guy I met in Sedona. Um, he runs a company called Oregon Knights, like knights on a horse. Oh. And yeah, and um, he took some um, declassified Russian technology and now makes these beautiful art pyramids that um, he's fig figured out how to have them absorb EMF. And I have to tell you that, you know, they're really, really great. In fact, I, I even have a little tiny one I carry here in my purse. To, um, to block the EMF for my cell phone. So this just this is a little disc you can see. It's, oh, it's about yeah, yeah. A, little, a quarter. Um, and then there are other, you know, bigger pyramids. So that's, uh, you know, what I have in the house. And, and um, so I really like those, you know, there's lots and lots of technology out there. There is, yeah. I like the piezoelectricity um, concept and um, Organite in general. Like I think um, Wil Wilhelm, Wright, uh, Wilhelm Wright, is he the one who invented Oregon? I think, anyway. Yeah. But um, like I, I have a I have a big pyramid that I that's mm -hmm. by my bed uh, that one of my friends made. She's all into making them, and I I went and did some crystal digging. So I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna learn how to make organ organite with my own crystals. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if I'll end up. I mean, I'll end up doing it, but I don't know if I'll end up like like that's gonna be a thing I do. But it, I definitely want to experiment with those things. Like um, I got an EMF reader too. Like nice. I, I'm starting to get cray cray with this stuff. Like I'm starting to be like, but I mean, because I do feel like we are energetic beings and we, we show very little attention to these things. Well, exactly. And the ancients knew this and they paid a lot of attention to it. So they wrote about things like, you know, ki, chi, prana, you know, all those, those words, because they actually understood that it's your energy body radiates you. Yeah. You know, your energy body makes up this. 
you know, so like I said, uh, you know, now we have all this fancy technology to actually be able to show, you know, the, the biofield or the energy body. Um, in addition to the AMI, there's, um, there's one called the BioWell, and then there's a biofield viewer that you can stand in front of this camera, and it literally shows you your energy field, and, it, and it's in real time. You know, so there's- Is that like one of those aura cameras, like where it'll show you what your aura, like, is that kind of similar technology? More, it's a little more sophisticated than that. Okay. Um, the Aura cameras, the Curlian photography just kind of shows you the colors, whereas this will literally show you like, oh, look, there's actually a hole in the field right here. Or, oh, look, there's all these, these, these black dots in the field over here. Ooh, I wonder how, yeah. much, how much does one of those machines cost? Uh, I think a few thousand dollars, but yeah. uh, like I said, my colleagues at the California Institute for Human Science, they'll be happy to, to uh, if you can show up in person, you know, do a reading. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, um, so, so how does a person work with you? Like, do you, do you do, I mean, especially with like COVID stuff or whatever, I mean, like, like, I guess you could take people from all over. You could just do, I do. on Zoom. I do. Yeah, exactly. So for people who are local to San Diego, I have um, my office here at um, Indigo Dragon Wellness Center in Encinitas. And then for people who are not local, then I work on Zoom. And uh, obviously I'm able to work with people around the world. And you've also been running, like I took a class that you put on with Terry Seltzer, what, what was that, two weeks ago? I think uh, so. Maybe three, two or three weeks ago, Whatever. which is super cool. Um, and, are you, and it sounds like you guys are going to be doing some more of those. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was recently appointed as the, uh, the sole organizer for that group. So that is the Association for Comprehensive Energy Psychology. And um, I'm now solely in charge of the San Diego chapter for that group. Okay, so, cool. And so you're going to yeah. have like guest speakers come in and talk about their preferred yeah. subjects and... Yeah, so until the pandemic is done, we're going to continue on Zoom. And uh, I think we're going to have six meetings next year. And uh, they will be on uh, Saturdays, about an hour, hour and a half. And, and um, I'm taking proposals. So anybody who wants to write a short proposal for me about something about energy psychology that would be um, educational and include an experiential um, component so that people could walk away with a new tool, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, great. And I'm, I'm including all that information in the, in the description below. So that's, that's cool. They, they'll have a links and stuff to that. Cool. And yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so people are interested in working with me. Um, I am taking new clients in my practice. So I'm certainly open to that. And, um, and I'm also running, you know, a series of, of uh, workshops on uh, other fun things. I have one coming up. Um, my next one is going to be on the Enneagram. It's going to be a three-part series on Zoom. And uh, your Enneagram is your spiritual personality type. So you're going to learn what's your Enneagram type, what's your spiritual personality type, and you're actually going to learn how to upgrade it. Because it turns out that there, it's kind of like bugs in computer code, you know, that, that um, every um, part, or I should say every type, there's nine types, mm -hmm. um, that all of them have bugs in the code. And so they'll, the, the bug will say something like, I'm unlovable, or I can't get my needs met. Okay, <laughs> and, yeah. So then we learn how to upgrade the code and transform the code into something like, oh, I am lovable and I can get my needs met and people like me. So, I mean, it seems like self-love is, I mean, from my experience with people I know, I mean, it seems to be like the most prevalent problem that we have in this society. It's almost as if like the society is set up to make us all have low self-esteem. So like, do you, do, how do, what's your personal method of like, what's a way in which you help people get over that bump? That is an absolutely huge problem and practically universal. And uh, one of the things that I love helping people with. And um, so again, I work very systematically. I always say, what's the ideal situation? Okay, that's our goal. So the goal is very simple, to love myself fully. And then we start looking at all the root causes. And most of the time, root causes are um, things like trauma. And when I'm talking about trauma, I'm talking about everything from little T trauma to the big T trauma. Um, you know, and a lot of times people, you know, they, they don't think about the little T trauma, you know, they don't think about, you know, the times where, you know, a person made them feel uh, maybe less than or insulted them in some way, uh, maybe made fun of their clothing or the way they said something or, you know, something they presented, you know, whatever else. And, um, you know, they just kind of, you know, forget about it. And um, that's a, a real shame, you know, because here's the thing is that those things damage us. They damage our energy bodies and therefore they damage our physical bodies. And they add you know? up. <laughs> and they add up. 
they add up, yeah. Uh, and in fact, Western science has now embraced this idea. Uh, Dr. Candace Pert wrote a seminal book called um, The Molecules of Emotion, where she was able to show that, look, you know, when you're having these negative emotions, i.e. traumatic emotions, that those things damage your cells. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. like, so I, I, I definitely, it may be anecdotal or not, but like, from my view of the world, it's like, I think, like, I see a lot of connection with emotional disease and cancer, like, just from people I've known, like, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, I do feel like we can make ourselves sick. We can, absolutely. Most of the time, cancer is um, something about something got under my skin, or something is eating me. And if you look at the part of the body, it becomes pretty obvious. So breast cancer is often about, you know, feeling like I, I didn't get to express my nurturing or I didn't get nurtured. Yeah. yeah. And colon cancer is I held onto my shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's, that's actually pretty deep though. It really is. Cause I mean. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And pancreatic cancer, losing the sweetness of life. Mm. Yeah. And liver is usually tied to anger. So liver cancer, these are usually very, very angry people. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I, I wish they would do sort of like a study about that, but that, oh, that that's one... true. And, you know, you can look at any traditional Chinese medicine chart and look at what's the emotion associated with a particular organ and it will show you. Yeah. 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 Ayurvedic uh, as well. Ayurvedic has a lot yes. of, um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just look at where the chakra is and what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say, so is there, is there anything else that, um, actually two questions, one question, like I was going to say is like, what do you think is going on here in reality? Like, like, how do you, what's your big picture in reality? Do you think like, um, this is kind of a, it's kind of a crazy question, but I like, I like to ask it a lot of people just kind of like, what do you think consciousness is or what is it to you kind of thing? And then I have another question after that, but yeah. Okay. So I tend towards a, a Jungian or depth psychology perspective. So Carl Jung talked about the personal unconscious coexisting with the collective unconscious. So to me, consciousness is I have my own personal unconscious, and that's what I am projecting out into the world and what the world is reflecting back to me. So if I believe that, for example, um, I'm unlovable, I'm sending that out, and then the world reflects it back to me and I have those experiences. And that's, by the way, why I love my work is because I can change my unconscious mind and then things change for me, you know, right. and I don't want this, you know, that um, I suffered with clinical depression for a lot of years of my life. And, um, you know, I managed to be pretty functional. I mean, you know, keep a job and, you know, go shopping and for the, you know, the groceries and whatnot. But, you know, I, I spent a lot of time lying on the couch and not being very functional. Mm -hmm. And I, as of the work and looking at those limiting beliefs and looking at those traumas and cleaning them up and transforming them to a higher vibration. Now what I put out is the world is fine. I'm fine. And the world reflects that back to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, the world is perfect, but, you know. And so then, the, you know, my, that's my personal unconscious. That's my consciousness. That's how I'm experiencing the world. And then there's the collective, right? You know, and so the collective, you know, has, you know, what we're all participating in. And when we are participating in the collective, we can kind of get swept away in it. You know, like this most recent election, oh my gosh, people were having so many feelings, big feelings. Mm -hmm. That was a big collective, you know, type of, you know, kind of watershed. Well, and we're still in a lot of feelings with the pandemic at large, you know, like yeah. worldwide, you know. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I found it very interesting, you know, that, that some people had big, 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 big feelings about it. And other people like just big feelings and other people were just like, well, they were just very zen about it. You know, this is the way that it is. This <laughs> too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's kind of an example of how, you know, the, the, the personal operates within the collective. You know, that we don't necessarily have control over the collective, but we do have control over ourselves. You know, we can choose, like, am I going to let go of my trapped emotion? 
Am I going to hold my head and let go of my trapped emotion? Am I going to find, am I going to meditate and let go of my trapped emotion? Am I going to do yoga and let go of my trapped emotion? What am I going to do? What am I, what tool am I going to use in my toolbox? Cause we've all got tools mm -hmm. to let go. Oh. I love that. Okay. And my last question is, okay, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to, or that maybe you, you like, or like a give or something that you think like, maybe you would want to leave people with that they should just know like a tip or something? Uh, yeah, to sum up, um, trapped emotion and uh, trauma and limiting beliefs are probably the three most biggest stumbling blocks for people. And I love to help people get over those things. So I'd love to have people um, help, to help them to uh, get happily married or get happily partnered and um, to have them have happy, healthy sex lives and to feel good about themselves and love themselves. So those are the, you know, the three areas that I'm, you know, just really, really love working with. But I, I also, you know, love to work with depression and anxiety and all that other stuff too. So, you know, whatever people want to work on to create their best lives, I'm happy to treat them. And uh, let's see, there was one other thing. Oh yeah, and then the, uh, the the takeaway, yeah, use your tools. Use what works for you, yeah. Movement counts for a lot, you know, so stretch, bend, do some yoga, and hold your head. I'm, so <laughs> I'm gonna start doing that, like, okay, like. Yeah, I'm such a huge advocate for this because it's, it's practically a panacea. It works for about 90% of everything, 90% of the time. And it doesn't take long. You know, I mean, you can, seriously, I mean, most people feel better about whatever thing they're thinking about that's upsetting them within 30 seconds. The longest I've ever needed, somebody needed to hold their head was three minutes. Like, that's a three minute letting go of yeah. that much. Amazing. That, that really is a, that's, that's a great tool to have. And it's, it's definitely a good thing to start with. And then, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Super simple. So yeah, like you've got plenty of, of other fun tools like that, but that's probably my favorite one. Very, very cool. All right, Miss Michelle, like this has been super fun. And yeah. I, again, like I'm putting all the information for people down there if they want to uh, get a hold of you. And even if uh, they need to like check out your classes, you know, your yeah. workshops and stuff like that's, yeah. if you don't want to work one on one, you should at least take a class because they're yeah. super fun, super affordable, super awesome. So yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been really super fun. Thank you, too.